Let's jump into our text today. I'm just having a blast in the book of Ze- Zechariah. I hope that you are too. I hope you're, you're reading Zechariah, maybe reading Haggai along with it, going back and ch- checking out Ezra and Nehemiah and just sort of beginning to put all this together. Um, once you really get into it, it's such a, a, a powerful and beautiful story. I want you to think, I want you to recall this morning as we get started, something in your life that was uh, a difficult circumstance or situation that uh, seemed to linger on and on and on. And as it did, it began to wear you down. It began to drain your enthusiasm for life and left you discouraged and even begin to fill you with, in some cases, a sense of doom. I want you to try to call forward a circumstance like that, a situation like that. Maybe you're in one right now, or maybe you have, can remember one from the recent past. It could be a number of different things. It could be a fractured relationship that that just keeps on lingering in its brokenness. It could be a a loss that you can't recover and and you can't seem to rebound from what you're now missing in your life. It could be a work situation that you're finding really challenging. It could be a, 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 a child circumstance where there's just something going on with one of your children and you've just been unable to see a breakthrough. Or maybe, maybe it could be the reverse, a parent situation that's really got you bogged down and just has continued on for years and maybe even decades. Um, it could be uh, a physical ailment with which you are battling. It could be uh, a financial circumstance. You know, just about anything in this life that is worth anything can get sideways and turn into a bad situation. And then sometimes those situations linger on and on and on. And maybe you've got moments where you sort of feel like you've forgotten about it and you're getting on with life. And you know, then that that email lands in your inbox that just reminds you again and it just sort of whooshes over you or the phone rings or you go to the mailbox and there's there's a, a reminder, a trigger in that mailbox or you, you get on social media and there's kind of a trigger. I've even had these moments where like I'm driving through certain parts of town and being close to certain neighborhoods or a building or something that will remind me of something that was painful that just hasn't been fixed or is lingering on in my life. Or maybe you're in a conversation and somebody says something and it just sort of triggers you. The number of triggers are endless. And when you experience those triggers, maybe you immediately get distracted uh, or maybe you you feel kind of that sense of being defeated or drained. Uh, this This is what it means to be a human being in many instances. And it's it's really at the core of this whole story we're telling around Israel and the preaching of Zechariah, which is intended to call them out of that kind of a circumstance, that kind of a situation. So I hope you've got your Bible, and I hope you're opening it up to the, the, the book of Zechariah, and we can dig into this together. This is Israel's condition as they sat back in the land around 520 B.C., before Christ. Um, remember the story of Israel, of course. There was, well, the story of humanity, really, going back to the Garden of Eden, there was the fall. 
right? And we thought maybe, you know, when you read through it, you go, wow, God would have been justified in just sort of letting humanity go because they had turned their backs on him and walked away. But he didn't let them go. He called somebody named Abraham. He said, you know what? Through you, I'm going to reach all these people. I'm going to call you back. You're going to be the beginning of my redemptive plan for humanity. And so Abraham grows into a large tribe. Uh, they end up in Egypt eventually. And in Egypt, Egypt serves as a kind of an incubator for the people of Israel. And they grow into a large number. But uh, somebody comes along who enslaves them. And so God needs to break them free from this enslavement. He does that. We call that the exodus. They come out of Egypt. And they're beginning to move towards the promised land. God gives them the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other commandments. And they're all intended to help the people of Israel. Israel live in healthy community together with each other and with God. But they keep failing over and over again. They fail to live out the demands, the commands to live out what God intended, the vision that God had for them as human beings. And uh, God sends prophets then to call them back to the right way of living and over and over again. That's why the Old Testament's so long because God's so patient and he keeps calling the people back to him. And they keep failing. They keep, in, they keep embracing their sin. They keep worshiping things that are not God. And so finally God sends them into exile. The people of Israel. They, they leave the promised land. They, and they go into, they're, they're taken away into these other nations. And, it, and it's part of what is going to be used by God to ultimately bring them back. But it's a painful loss. It's a painful situation. It's a difficult circumstance. And the story that we're engaging in with Zechariah and then also Ezra and Nehemiah is that moment when these, when these Israelites come back to the land. It's been destroyed and they're called back to rebuild what they had in a sense. In particular, they're called to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple is an extremely important part of what it meant to be the nation of Israel because the temple had an important significance. It meant the presence of God. The temple meant the presence of God. Now, I want to play around just, just for a minute here with uh, what the temple is. Um, I've been doing a, a study on the temple and the, the temple throughout the Bible and I've just, my mind has been somewhat blown by um, what God is teaching us through the temple and it's, and it's an element of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we oftentimes don't understand very well. We don't think in terms of, st of temples anymore very much and there's a reason for that. But let me just explain explain to you uh, a little bit about what the uh, original temple was. There were, there were three rooms in the temple that were sort of the three areas of focus. And if you look at the different elements that were in those three areas of the temple, you'll understand to some degree why God gave Israel the temple and why it was such an important symbol of his presence, an important space of his presence in the world. So the outer court of the temple, and I almost thought of putting up a, um, a, a chart here, but, but most of the ones were so complicated. I want you to just think more in simple terms. Three spaces next to each other. Um, the outer court of the temple had an altar which was built of uncut stone and it had a large bronze basin which was called the sea. And so most scholars understand that that outer court was representing earth. Uh, it had the sea and the unhewn rock was the earth. And so you have that uh, right at the beginning. You go into the next room which was called the holy place 
and you had the, the menorah candles, which represented the, the heavenly lights, and you had the colors of, of blues and, and purples in that room. And, and that room was really representing the, the heavenly space. And then you go into the third room, which you didn't actually do, because it's called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest would ever go in there once a year. And in that space, you had objects that really were pointed towards God. And this represented the spiritual realm. So you have earth, you have the heavenlies, and then you have the spiritual realm. And this gave Israel a sort of a framework for understanding what God was doing. That in fact, all of creation is ultimately intended to be his temple. And this temple that he gave them was sort of a symbol to help them understand the way in which he intended to be present with them. Now, uh, the temple was so important and presence was so important because we made this point in the very first sermon that God's presence in your life is everything. God's presence in your life is everything. I was reading, I've been reading through the Psalms and, and reading Psalm 24, you know, and, and what does David say? He says, you know, he just talks about seeking the Lord in his temple. It just, it means everything for him to be in the presence of God. One thing I seek, he says. One thing I seek. And that's really a good vision for all of us in life. One thing we should seek is the presence of God in our lives. Thankfully, thankfully because of Jesus Christ, that presence is possible for us. So now uh, come back with me to the land. Uh, the people are back in um, the promised land and it's 520 BC and they still haven't rebuilt the temple. Um, why had they not rebuilt the temple? Well, firstly, because they uh, were restricted by the governing authorities that were around them, the, the lower ones. They'd been sent back and they could rebuild the temple, but then others restricted them from doing it. And you know how this happens uh, when you're restricted? Uh, then uh, they were restric restricted from their own mindset. You know how you get into kind of a funk when you're not allowed to do something that you need to do and it lingers on and on and you start to get discouraged? And Israel was a little bit like that. That they'd given up on what they'd been called to do when they were called to come back into the land. And it's into this context that Zechariah begins to preach to get Israel moving towards their God-ordained destiny, which was to live with the presence of God in the midst, with his house, his glorious house being built in the midst. Uh, and so we've talked about uh, the process of that occurring in our first sermon. The small thing that we talked about was uh, the return to the Lord, spiritual preparation for it. And then last week, Pastor Paul talked about small thing number two, which was to receive the Lord's mercy, to know that it's God who's ultimately doing the building of the temple, the, the bringing of his presence into our lives. And today, we're going to look at another vision. Uh, there's going to be, by the way, eight of these visions throughout the beginning part of the book of Zechariah. And this vision, the Lord's going to call Israel and us to another small thing. You know, we think about, I, I invited you to recall a, a difficult circumstance or situation in your life that just seemed to linger on and on and, and wear you down and drain you of your enthusiasm. Um, and into that context, the Lord is going to speak these beautiful and powerful words. Lift up your heads. Rise in confidence because the Lord is with you.
The Lord is with you. Let's get into the vision. Uh, the vision of the horns and the craftsmen. So I give you all that background because sometimes when you read these texts, they seem hard to connect with. And you need to understand that background in order to connect with the vision. So let's talk about this vision. This is the second vision that comes to Zechariah that he then presents to the people of Israel. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read this. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now let me just pause there for a second. Horns were symbols of power and authority in that day. Um, they were often related to military might. Uh, there might be a horn, you know, as a centerpiece of a powerful person's helmet. So that they were in, when they were in battle, you would see uh, that horn. But of course it comes from, you know, the understanding of the most powerful animals. The ones that tended to combat with one another had horns to be able to do that. Um, so it was a, it was a metaphor uh, of those. Uh, that there are four horns means either that there's there's two animals and maybe maybe uh, Zechariah is making a connection with the nations that came in to destroy Israel and to, to carry them away Assyria and Babylon or perhaps it's a reference to the four directions which we've seen already in the book of of, of Zechariah that when 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 the when the four is brought up it often refers to the directions north south east east and west and so it's essentially saying you know all, all the power it's a comprehensive, all the powers that have come against Israel are in mind here. All the powers that were arrayed against Israel. None, in other words, none of the powers that were arrayed against Israel to carry them away in the exile will ultimately be left undealt with by God. That's what it's saying when we think about the four different horns. And Zechariah is going to call them out of the shame they seem to be continuing to suffer uh, under uh, during this season. In the next verses, he'll refer to them as not having raised their heads. Uh, all the fight has gone out of Israel. They're in a funk. They're not living into what God has for them. Which you remember, uh, I was saying in our first sermon, this is partly why the book of Zechariah is so poignant, so helpful to us right now as we continue to, to live under the effects of the pandemic and many other things happening in our society and our culture. You know, it's easy to fall into that kind of funk, to kind of fall into that sort of, um, that uh, anti antipathy uh, and just uh, that, the, the just to, to not be moving forward, to be stuck. And Zechariah is coming to these people to call them out of their stuckness. They're not living into what God has for them. They're like a, a battered woman or a slave who's been freed but can't break the sense of mental and emotional enslavement, enslavement they've been under. There's this magnetic pull backwards into their previous condition. They're not breaking free. And it's into that circumstance that Zechariah speaks these hopeful words, this vision. And maybe, just maybe, you're in a place in life where you need to receive these words as well. Verse 20, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. That's, that's a statement of shame, right? 
the Israelites were incapable of, they didn't raise their head because they were ashamed of what had happened to them. And these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, the horns. The word terrify is a word that can be sort of used in a context where you shoo an animal away. So these craftsmen are going to shoo away these horns that have been terrifying the people of Israel. Now they're going to be terrified and, and scattered. To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now let's work through this a little bit uh, and then we're going to get to some, hopefully some really clear application for your life and, and for my life. Let's talk about some of these symbols here that are in this vision that Zechariah gets. There's quite a lot of debate and confusion about who these craftsmen are in particular. The word is, is probably the best translation, as I've been digging into this over the course of the last two weeks, the best translation is craftsmen, um, but a lot of times that word would be followed up with something, a more specific term. So it might be craftsmen in wood, or craftsmen in metal. And so sometimes you'll see um, that it's translated as blacksmiths, because the assumption in that case is that the horns, or the horns on the helmet, which would have been, which would have been metal, and so it would require a blacksmith to be able to cut those horns off of the helmet of the tormentor against Israel. So there's, the, there's that one way to approach it. And then there's some other kind of crazy interpretations about what the horns are and who the craftsmen are. Uh, and then there's this third option, which, which I like the most. And at the end of the day, the different options don't really lead to a different principle. So we're, we're, we're just sort of playing with understandings here. Um, but the principle is going to be the same, which I'll get to in a moment. But the third option for the craftsmen is that, um, this is the one I like the most, is the craftsmen are the temple builders. And the reason I like this option the best is because the context that we're in suggests that we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple. If you look back Backwards, just in verse 16, a few verses before, God says, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. Whenever he uses that phrase, my house, he's, not, he's talking about the temple. That's, where God, that's God's house, declares the Lord of hosts. And a key theme in Zechariah is that by faithfully doing the small things to which God has called them, they will defeat the enemies around them. That's one of the key themes that we see in the book of Zechariah. Note that the temple they ended up building, in fact, was small. If we go back to the book of Ezra, where we're talking about the same time frame, when they began to lay the foundation of the temple, some of the older people who were around and remembered the, the temple that was before, that was destroyed, were kind of sad. Because the temple they were building was kind of lame. It wasn't big. They remembered the glory of the previous one, and this temple wasn't so exciting. Now, when you get forward to, to the time of Jesus, uh, it's this temple which, been ex which has been expanded and glorified by Herod. So that's a different temple than what we're talking about in this moment when they're just returning back from the exile. It's the same temple, but it's been expanded. In fact, go back to that Ezra passage. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, meaning the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So you had joy and weep. You had joy for the ones who didn't even remember the old temple. And so they were just excited this new temple is being built. But then you had weeping for those who remembered a more glorious temple. So this is the day of small things. 
simple temple, small temple being built. Another key theme we'll explore is captured in this wonderful verse in Zechariah, um, which inclines me to think of these craftsmen also as temple builders. Um, then he said to me, and this is, this is a famous one you'll, you'll know, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power. Which to me suggests, you know, more the, the cutting off of, of the horns. It would be by might and by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So in the book of Zechariah, we have this sense of simple, small acts of obedience in following the leading of the Holy Spirit results in big things. Including the scattering of the enemies of Israel. Craftsmen filled with the spirit uh, who build the temple are more organic candidates for the work of defeating the enemies than craftsmen who cut off the horns, in my view. So I'm just giving you a little bit of my interpretation here. Um, and, and I would say there's precedent in Exodus for craftsmen being filled with the spirit. The original builders of the temple were filled with the spirit. And then one last point. There's precedent for worship to be a force in military defeat. In the Old Testament. You remember when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? You know why they were marching around Jericho and blowing trumpets? It was an act of communal worship. And that's what brought down the walls of Jericho. And all of that worship is associated with the temple. And so I think there's precedent for that. Um, so if the craftsmen are the temple builders, then they defeat the forces against them by doing the simple work of building the temple. And through that, they defeat the forces against them. Or they are special warriors who cut off the horns. Either way, the point is, is that God will defeat those who have been tormenting Israel, his people. And that's the most amazing thing. Uh, not how they're defeated, whether it be by cutting off the horn or the temple building, but the fact that they are defeated. These tormentors of Israel have been done away with, and Israel can now lift their heads. You see that? That long, lingering concern that just never seemed to go away over the course of a lifetime. Finally, God acts and defeats it. Defeats the nations around them and they are able to raise their heads. Now, it's always interesting with the book of Zechariah, there are layers of application. So there's an application that takes place right in the season of Zechariah. And then there's the grand application that takes place ultimately with the coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the, 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 the everlasting temple, which is, which is the new heaven and new earth. The whole thing is the temple and God is present. So we've got that application. And then there's the principal application of the way that God works in our lives. And we see small instances of this take place in our lives as we ongoingly meet the challenges of life that sometimes linger uh, on with us and that we can't seem to defeat. So I'm going to lean into that application, uh, that real personal side here in the remaining moments that we have. 
What is this vision saying to you and to me this morning? What about the horns and the craftsmen in you? The first thing I think that we pull out of this, a spiritual principle that is true if we have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I say it that way for those of you who may be in more of a kind of a seeking posture of spiritual things. I say it that way because what we all need to understand is that, is that once we get to the New Testament, the doorway for entrance into relationship with God, into the presence of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross to die an atoning sacrifice to be able to bring healing from sin. And Jesus says that he now is the temple. And so the presence of God is with Jesus Christ. And then when he's, when he's uh, raised and goes into heaven, um, the temple becomes the people of God, the, the, the body of Christ, which is the church. And so it's through uh, those means that we connect into that that overarching theme of the presence of God. So we've got to start with Jesus. And so for those of you who are in walking with Jesus, in your relationship with God, God is present in your life in, by that means. That beast of a challenge that you're facing, whatever it is, and I gave you a list at the very beginning of my introduction, whatever that beast is, it's on a leash. It's on a leash. It, in other words, um, it, it's not beyond God's sovereign control. Assyria and Babylon did not appear um, to scatter Israel into exile apart from the Lord. When they came on the scene, it was not a surprise to God. When Assyria and Babylon came on the scene, it was not a surprise to God. He didn't say, oh, what are you doing with my people? Right? He, was, he was involved with the entire process. And Assyria and Babylon, of course, willingly participated because of their own selfish, sinful desires. And they furthered the disaster, which we looked at in the text last week. But they did not operate outside the sovereignty of God. And this is the spiritual principle you can take to the bank. That the beast of a challenge that you are facing, whatever it is, that causes your heart to race and your head to hang, is on a leash. That's what this text says. It's not outside of God's sovereign control. It will only be allowed to go so far in your life. And you can trust that as far as it will go, God will give you the resources to meet. That's the spiritual principle. So you're here this morning and you've, you, you recalled a challenger in the midst of something, a difficult, an unwelcome circumstance or situation and it's just been going on and on and on and you're frustrated and you're defeated and you're distracted and you're downtrodden and you're, you're downcast because of it. And the message of the gospel this morning is that that problem, which you feel is so insurmountable, is on a leash. God knows it. He knows how big it is. He knows how long it will go. So your job is to trust in his resources to meet the needs of the day, to walk with him in his presence, to learn the things that he wants you to learn. This is part of the story of Israel. They, they had to learn some things about God. And oftentimes the hard things in our lives are allowed by God because they enable us to learn more about God and about the world that he made and about ourselves. I, I can't help but think about um, Hebrews 12, 11. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Some of these hard things, they're just, they're allowed by God within the framework of the fallenness of the world and because God will bring good out of it. But know that there's a, they're on a leash. Sometimes, you know, I look at some of the challenges that God brings into my life and I say, really? You thought I could handle this? Right? And of course, uh, you know, I mean, compared to many people in this world, I, I've lived a, a very blessed life and, and certain things I haven't had to face, certain things I've had to face. But even so, right, we all, we all are where we are on our journey. And sometimes you feel like with God, you're a kindergartner in a college level course. Right? That challenge that he's allowed just seems bigger than what you would have ever thought you needed or could meet. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to hear the principle, the spiritual principle. I want you to hear the promise of God, of his sovereign grace and mercy over you. That he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows how long it's been. He knows how tired you are. He knows how frustrated you are. He knows of the moments when you feel hopeless or downcast or defeated. He knows it all. And he's present with you. And he's strong and powerful. He's, he's, he's greater than this challenge that you're facing. And ultimately he will terrify it. He will shoo it away at one point or another. Because that's his awesome plan for you. So principle number one, that beast of a challenge is on a least. Do you remember though also there was a shame element to the people of Israel? They couldn't raise their heads because they had been scattered, right? And so also your shame is scattered too. This theme of scattering is all throughout. And the word scatter has to do with winnowing. So winnowing is a farm term. It's when you take what you have uh, hauled in from your harvest and using some sort of implement like a pitchfork, you throw it up into the air and the wind blows and the heavy good stuff falls back down to the ground and the chaff blows away. And it was a term that was often used of Israel when they were scattered by their enemies coming in. They were scattered like chaff all over. Okay? So now that's going to be reversed. That their enemies are going to be scattered. The thing that has caused them so much pain and that has caused them so much shame will be scattered away. Verse 21. These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them. That is to say, these craftsmen have come to terrify the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Judah's facing the funk of inactivity, of apathy, of inability to go forward, of the shame that then settles in on top of that. We did a whole series on this. Remember we said that guilt is feeling bad about what you did. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. 
And a lot of times in life, that's what happens. We do something wrong, and then we, 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 that becomes even larger, and we begin to feel terrible about uh, who we are as a result of what we have done. And then it's possible even in this life to feel shame for things that, areas where we didn't sin, just of, of who we are. Uh, elements about us that seem different from the world around us, which are nonetheless part of God's design for us. Uh, and so shame is this pervasive element. We're going to dig more into this in a couple of weeks. There's a passage that's going to bring up the, the question of shame. Um, and we're going to be able to dig more deeply into it. But I just want to say that the Lord lifts our downcast heads. That's a statement against shame. He terrifies the horns. He casts down the horns of our tormentor and raises our heads. And if we can hold our head up, this is, a, this is an important spiritual principle that if we could really absorb this, I think it would transform the way we look at the world around us. Um, if, if, if we can hold our head up before the Lord, before whom should we ever feel shame? Before who else should we ever feel shame? Right? If we can hold our heads up before the Lord, before the God who made us, uh, then before whoever else should we feel shame? And the reason we can hold our head up before the Lord is because of Christ's work on the cross. His atoning work which frees us, that Christ covers our shame. And so we can stand in the presence of God, free Known by God, unashamed of who we are, knowing that we've been created in His image and that the unique things about us are God-ordained. And the sins that we've committed that lead us to experience a deep sense of shame have been forgiven. We can stand in the presence of God. It's a beautiful, glorious truth which causes us then not to need to feel shame in any other context, whatever it is. So your shame is scattered too is the second principle here. There's this alternating between casting down and lifting up. And today the Lord is lifting up our heads. Causing us to rise in confidence. And then lastly, my third principle here. God defeats our enemies with the small things. If we want to see our enemies defeated, let's be the craftsmen and build the temple. And for us in the New Testament age, that means building up the church, which is the New Testament temple. We see this in uh, Ephesians and 1 Peter. Each person now is a living stone. So here's how, and I love this illustration that Pastor Paul used, you know, you have the old uh, iPhone and then the new iPhone comes out and it's so much better. The new version of the temple um, includes in this season, it moves from the old stone temple to Jesus to the church, the body of Christ. And now the stones are not dead objects, but they're living beings. They're human beings made in the image of God. And so the new temple is made of these living stones. And so as we go about the work of building up the church, we are building, we are the craftsmen building the temple. The temple, which is now the presence of God in the world. The church, which is now the presence of God in the world. And so when you do the small things, when you worship, when you worship, I stood here just in loving the worship this morning, almost by myself in this room, but it's okay. 
raising my hands, singing the songs, because I love to worship. When we worship, we are part of the process of building the temple. When we serve, we need you to jump back in and serve. To get connected, to come to show up on Sunday and, and help build the temple, which is the church, right? Which is the presence of God in the world. Come back and serve to pray. Would you, would you start praying for your church this week on a daily basis? Pray for Solano. Pray for this church. When we, this is the work of the craftsman, the simple work of the craftsman, to pray for the church, to give to the church, to learn and grow as disciples. Why I'm so excited about this Gospel Academy cohort because we're providing a new opportunity for people to grow in depth and to be craftsmen, right? who will be part of the building up of the church. All the things that make up the community of the church, when you engage in those, you are waging war against the dark spiritual forces of the world. Small things that lead to big things. These are the spiritual forces that want to scatter the people of God. They want to make you scattered and winnowed and blown to the side. Just like Zechariah came to preach into a community that was immobilized by their circumstances, he's preaching into our community as well. To call us up. To get going. To build the temple, which is the church, filled with beautiful living stones, becomes the presence of God in a fallen, broken, hurting world that desperately, desperately needs it. When we simply be the church, we break down strongholds. That's what this text is saying. So let's do it. Let's be the church. Let's rise in confidence, not in our own selves, but in, in the Lord. Let's live into our calling in this coming season. Be called out and forward to the beautiful things that God has ordained for us. Just as he did for Israel. God, would you meet us in this calling? Would you use the words of Zechariah to penetrate our hearts? Would you, would you heal us from the brokenness that comes from long struggles that wear us down? Renew us, rejuvenate us by your spirit. Free us from shame. Call us into the glorious work of building up your church where you reside the presence of God in the world, which is our greatest, most desperate, most most deepest longing in our need. Thank you that we can be part of these amazing things. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.